Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 69. All right, guys. So uh, a little bit of stuff went on for me this weekend, and so I haven't done a whole lot of preparation, but uh, we can get through this. I'm but, also in the process of moving, so we're we're wholly unprepared. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to keep up our cadence. And yeah. This won't be a bad episode. We actually, this episode is going to have a lot of uh, user feedback incorporated into it. So Podcast users? <laughs> listeners? Okay. That works. Yeah. Listener feedback episode. So the first one, I want to go with some follow-up from our last week's episode. And Vic Hudson won. He tweeted that Spotify also was charging more for the IAP, for their subscription, than what they were charging on the website. So they're basically passing that 30% Apple tax onto the iPhone users or iOS users subscribing through the app. Now, Which is, in fact, against the App Store guidelines, right? Yes. But I, I really think that they had been doing that for a long time. I don't remember. I don't have proof, but I'm pretty sure they were. Yeah, I think it's another one of those cases of selective enforcement that we all love so much. Yeah. So anyway, thanks, Vic Hudson, for that one. And we also had our resident Android troll on <laughs> the Slack chat. Somehow he corrupted our Slack bot, and now it likes Android. I'm not sure what he did there. It's bad but, news. Yeah. We might have to kill Slack bot, reboot him. <laughs> But he he says that Google doesn't require you to use Google for in-app purchases. You can implement your own. He said that the Kindle app on Android doesn't require you to use Google and that actually you're using some Amazon payment system through that. And he had a, yeah, and he had a couple other examples, too, of people who uh, were linking out to their website uh, to take payment, uh, which was A-OK with Google. So. Maybe if Google takes over the world, then we'll have better payment terms. But <laughs> until now, you still got a deal with Apple. I don't know. I guess maybe one day we'll get around that. Yeah. I don't think it'll go away completely. I mean, Apple needs to cover their costs, but 30% for a digital transaction is, is kind of high. Credit card companies seem to do fine with 1% to 3%, so... I think those in-app purchases, especially the reoccurring ones, could be a little bit more favorable. It's a little bit, but when your margins on the, on your digital goods are really thin, like, say, Comixology app was, because they were selling the physical books for, at the same price as the the uh, EPUB versions, which they don't own the rights to. You know, they were, re they were just publishing things from Marvel and DC and whatnot. So Marvel and DC are taking their cut. They want most of that. And Comixology, now Amazon, being just the middleman, probably couldn't afford to, to uh, sell these at a 30% cut. Right. And uh, Audible, which is another Amazon property, they don't sell uh, the Audible books uh, in the app. You have to actually go out to the mobile website or the desktop browser and, and buy it there. And then you can right. download it in the app, but they, they don't even have a link back to the store. Uh, the web experience is, is pretty decent, so it's not too painful, but it, it 
does create a little bit of friction when you're ready to get a new book and you have to go out to the web and do it. Yeah, One password helps with that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So there, there's definitely issues. Some, something like Comixology, they, they couldn't sell those books at a higher price digitally than the, the physical ones because nobody would buy it. So it would just kill well, their business model. To some degree, you expect the, the ebook to be cheaper because you don't have the printing and distribution costs. Right. And cheaper than they actually are still. That's another story. So uh, I think we talked a bit last time about uh, waiting for new betas, and new betas came, and on uh, the Sierra beta, we got um, a two-factor authentication with your uh, watch enabled, which uh, I'm enjoying a bunch. Uh, the, the only issue is that I had to finally give in and add the uh, two-step two or two-factor authentication for uh, my Apple ID, which I probably should have had on. But that, that caused every single device I own, which is a lot, including all the test devices, to like prompt me once, if not multiple times, for my uh, my new password as well as my uh, code from from my phone. Yeah. And that was tons of fun this week. I felt like I spent like half a day entering passwords everywhere. I had to, and my kids and my wife all have my my username on the app store, so I had to like go get all their devices while they were asleep, so they wouldn't wake up and not be able to use their devices. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. And I, I think just to clarify, I think Apple makes a difference. Or differentiates between two-step and two-factor. I, I think uh, there's like a legacy two-step authentication approach, but then the two-factor, you have to uh, authorize on a known device through that like right. SMS yeah. or or some other means. Yeah, and but that is one of the requirements for the, yeah. the new watch. I started to enable that, but I got a warning saying that not all my devices would support it. Uh, I could still turn it on. And I think it would like send an email or something. There would be a, an extra step for the device. So I don't, I, I don't know if it's um, El Capitan, but you know, some some device that I have uh, doesn't have the two-factor enabled yet. I think that came out in iOS between iOS eight and iOS nine. Uh, so I'm guessing El Capitan is fine, but it's probably you have some test device that's running iOS eight. Would be my guess. Could be. Uh, but I mean, I think it's just like you kind of enter a combined password. Google's Authenticator works too for apps that don't support the their two-factor yeah. auth. You just have to like tag on your your little code onto the end of the password or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or you can create an app-specific password. So there's all kinds of ways different people work around it. But yeah, I think it's worth it though. The watch unlocking is really awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So how does it work? You just walk up to your laptop with your watch on, or you have to do something on your watch? Yeah, I just, uh, when I wake it from sleep, uh, instead of the normal login screen, it already knows that I'm I'm close by, so it just says, like, unlocking with watch, and after a couple seconds, you're in. Okay. So it doesn't do it with your phone, though? It'll, it only has to, have the, has to be your watch? I think, though, I believe that's true. Yeah, that's correct. I kind of justified it in that anybody could like pick up your phone and walk over to your computer, but your watch is probably less likely to be left lying around. I don't know. I think yeah, and I think your watch has to be unlocked too, which means yeah. it's stayed on your wrist and the passcode's been entered or you've unlocked it on your phone if you have that turned on. So it's a little more secure than if the phone would do it. Uh, you know, I 
I've been reluctant to turn on the password, the passcode for my watch. I can't really say why. I just don't want to put on my watch and type in a passcode. Well, I don't, I don't normally do that either. I put on my watch and after the first time you unlock your phone, there's an option that it automatically unlocks your watch too after it's on. Oh, okay. So it's not too bad. If you put on your watch and your phone isn't nearby, then you have to unlock it with the passcode. Yeah. Hmm. So we had uh, some more feedback in our uh, Slack chat, didn't we? Yeah, we had some uh, questions. Um... We had Chris, who was asking about keeping track of feature requests, what we do with that, and also how we prioritize features. So I know he just released a new version of his app today as we were are recording. And so I'm sure that's, that's, these were the questions that were going on in his mind, you know, what should I put in this 1.3 and how do I keep track of all the bugs that people are reporting to me? Okay. We can just so, kind of go around and talk about what we do and Sam, you yeah. want to start off? <laughs> so are we going to talk about my personal projects or do you want the big enterprise version that I happens in my day job i think we can well talk about both i mean it's a yeah. problem of scale to some degree yeah so the big enterprise version and we use jira for keeping track of bugs and also for features we also have a product owner and he's the one that's prioritizing you know what we work on next and so and actually right now um we're going through this two-day planning event that happens every eight weeks. So at this point, the product owners have, across the board, have decided what all of the teams are working on. And then we're supposed to go and fit that into our eight-week schedule coming up. It's it's um, mind-numbing, I guess. It's not Maybe not even mind-numbing. It's exhausting. You just, you just don't, it doesn't feel good. It's not really an agile kind of thing it's it's called safe which is stands for like scaled agile framework but it's really more like agile with process and you know agile is <laughs> supposed to be just the minimum amount of process and it's so. just to kind of add some some context to that it's really designed for teams that are in the hundred plus people yeah yeah when you got to coordinate across multiple teams that don't have all the same reporting structure and it just it's really for coordinating large enterprises or groups of developers yeah i mean i i think once you get to that size you definitely do need some some heavyweight or some more heavyweight processes and if you're you know a small team of you know like three to seven uh i'm just not sure that's the ideal i'm not sure what the ideal is but that's yeah. that's certainly one way to cover go about it and it's it's, it's not so much that you know, there's a team of 100 people or more. It's that there's a whole bunch of teams working on similar projects, all part of a larger program with a larger enterprise strategy. Uh, so coordinating across all those teams. So not to make it sound like it's this monolithic 100 person yeah. team. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. not that. I didn't mean to imply that. <laughs> Your standups would take all day. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so Chris isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Chris is not really interested in that kind of thing because he's a one-man shop and 
pretty sure even if he did have multiple personalities, he wouldn't have that many. <laughs> yeah. So, no, Alex, you've got a much smaller team. Yeah. And you can can kind of represent that other side of 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 the scale. Yeah. So I guess I'd say what we do is just because we don't want you know a bunch. There's not Jira is kind of heavyweight for a team of three people. Um, it's really nice, like if you're in that big environment with a large team. But we just keep everything in one tool as well. We just use a Trello. Uh, we just kind of do a Kanban style. So if it's a new feature that people want, we'll throw a card out into like a backlog uh, list. Um, and then for bugs, we just throw them on like the, the working board so we can knock them out pretty quick. And then it kind of goes through the process of, you know, to do and done, test, all that stuff. Uh, and we just kind of take them all as they are. Um, it's the, the thing it's not the most ideal for, I, I'd say, of the three questions that Chris had was uh, kind of keeping track of feature requests. That's probably where it falls down the most. Um, just because you don't have, you just throw a card out there. You don't really have a good idea of like, all right, how many people wanted this? Or, you know, which which features are important? And you, you, you're a small enough team, you kind of get a feel for that anyways. But um, that's what we do. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that or do something similar for your own projects? Well, it sounds like you don't have a whole lot of, um, let's say, process. and Yes, <laughs> well, you don't like process. Yeah. But the, I meant more like process around choosing what works on next, what you work on next. More of yeah. a gut feeling. Yeah. But yeah. other there are things that people can do to kind of maybe put a little more science behind that so they have more quantifiable measures for how much a feature is re requested and you know, what value will this feature provide in the future? Yeah, there was a, there was a nice tool that um, we almost started using a while ago called user, user voice, uh, which is kind of focused on the feature request stuff. They just got rid of their free tier. So it's really expensive for a indie or a, or a small shop. I think it's like starts at a couple hundred bucks a month. Which is really a shame because it it was a nice nice tool. I guess I just didn't get enough paying customers. Mm. So that would keep track of actual feedback from users, right? Yeah, and you could like do a voting style thing to uh, you know, to vote up a feature that you want and stuff like that. You they gave you like a limited number of points. So it was it's a kind of a cool cool thing, but we we didn't get to it in time before our the free plan went away. <laughs> so Jira has. The planning board like Trello, but it also has a lot of other features like uh, voting. But there's a huge difference in kind of the pricing licensing model with Trello and, and Jira. Trello, in most cases, is free. And then Jira starts that I think, you know, you can get for a team of up to 10 people, you can license the cloud version for $100 a year. Uh, so it's not too bad, but as soon as you get past that 10, it starts getting a lot more expensive, uh, but it has a ton of features, highly customizable. You know, where we use Trello a lot, and a lot of uh, consulting companies that we run into and and clients use Trello. Uh, where we found that it doesn't work so well is in issue tracking. So when you kind of get into that review test cycle, Trello just is is really kind of a clumsy approach to track. If you try and create a card for every uh, every defect. It it's it's really hard to kind of manage the workflow of that and which version was it found in and 
you know, is it a critical issue or not? And you can use labels in Trello, but it can get complicated. So, you know, we tend to, we've been trending towards Jira more often lately, but Trello's really nice for small informal teams. It's yeah. extremely approachable. Jira takes quite a bit of, you know, it used to be fairly straightforward, but it's, it's non-trivial. It's uh, gotten more enterprisey. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be the, the, the anti-enterprise tool and now it is the enterprise tool. So it's kind of <laughs> funny. I started using it back when they first came out and brought it into a big enterprise and had a lot of resistance to it. <laughs> but now it's like, now, now it is would, the enterprise tool. So it's, it's really kind of weird. They would never let it go either. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a nice, powerful tool. Um, and you don't have to use all the features you can. You know, they have some nice out of the box workflow and, and process concepts. They have the, the con, you can do the Kanban style or you can do more of a, more of a, um, scrum based approach or uh, customize it however you want. But, uh, you know, on top of that, you know, how do you guys get feedback from users? Cause that was, you know, there was, there was an app that I built with a friend of mine a couple of years ago and, and we put it out there. We, lots of people downloaded it, started using it. And we set up a Wufoo form and it just kind of emails, uh, feature requests and issues and support questions to us. Um, but it's not the best way. Email is kind of a horrible way of tracking requests. Yep. It's very horrible. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could set up something like a if then that type of workflow and have those go into Jira or Trello. Um, you could ha you can actually email directly to Trello and it'll create a card for you if uh, if you want to track everything in Trello or um, if you're already using GitHub, GitHub issues is not a bad issue tracking solution. It's it doesn't have the fancy planning board or workflow concepts, but it's not bad for basic issue tracking. Yeah, we actually use uh, Zendesk as where so we get emails from users uh, and those get forwarded onto Zendesk. It's kind of like a issue tracker and we have a like a part-time support person that we we pay to go through and manage that stuff but our issue is that you know we have so many users that it's it's hard to uh to you know weed out the the noise to the, the actual useful stuff that comes in so it's really hard for us to just go through all of it you probably wouldn't want a trello board getting flooded no with all of yeah them. right yeah, we probably get hundreds of emails every day. Yeah, that kind of goes back to that issue of scale. Like if you only get one a week or one every few weeks, that's a lot easier to manage in a manual process. But yeah, if you get get a large volume, then it gets a lot more difficult. Yeah, that's that, a good problem to have, though. It is, and you know that support channel is far better than than App Store reviews because you <laughs> can't really take action on it, and you know, it's actually really nice when you get somebody contacts you through email or some way where you can have a two directional conversation. Because a lot of times, even if, even if it starts out as being somewhat, um, antagonistic, it, a lot of times, you know, if you respond properly, they end up being, you know, really great to work with. A lot of times they're more than willing to help you troubleshoot the issue and test, you know, do a test flight build and, verify that it's fixed or help you get more information. Yeah, we at one point we did uh 
we basically had a, a form that people could submit feedback with. And especially when they were reporting bugs and stuff like that, uh, we just found it was it was really key to have that that way to to talk back to them. So that's why we kind of switched email so that we always have a reply to address essentially if we need to get more information or say, hey, this bug is fixed or or whatever. Not that we're awesome about following back up with people, but uh, if it's something that we're perplexed at and lots of users are having, we can kind of reach out to get more information, which is I think pretty important. I wouldn't. I guess I'm not a big fan of just the uh, just a form that populates something because you may want to talk to them. It's yeah. really good to have that ability. Yeah, a lot of times those the people who are willing to take the time to reach out to you or can often be great advocates for your app if you handle it properly. Mm -hmm. And that that's one advantage that the Play Store has over the App Store is I believe there's some ability to to respond. You if can respond, I think, one time. Yeah. To yeah. a given review, you can respond once. So you're not going to carry on a conversation in the reviews. No. But what I see a lot of times on, on sites like Amazon for products that have a good product advocate support team, they'll respond to anybody who leaves like a one-star or two-star review saying, sorry, you had issues, but contact our support. We'll be happy to help you work through mm -hmm. it. Right. But and uh, it, it was nice, too. We released one of our Android apps, and we uh, had a, a feature that we promised multiplayer, uh, and it took a little bit longer than we wanted to for that to come out, and we had promoted it in the app, so we were getting a lot of one-star reviews that were like, one star until multiplayer comes out. <laughs> uh, good old hostage star treatment. Um, and it was nice, though, when we released multiplayer, go, go through and say, hey, uh, Multiplayer is out now. Five stars, wink face, you know. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so very star. nice. I think to kind of summarize the tool position, like Trello and something like a Wufu form or Google Forms uh, is a free way to get started to have a somewhat professional um, way of handling it. Um, but it kind of has a, a breaking point where you, you want to start moving towards something like Zendesk or something as soon as your volume starts going up or if you you know have somebody else managing uh, a feedback and I I know Alex you at A star software your team you know outsource part of that and yep. and uh, and I know a friend of ours from the Cocoa Heads group he he's kind of a one man dev team with multiple apps but he outsources his his social network management so somebody mm -hmm. handles all the incoming requests and comments coming through like Twitter and Facebook and, and such. Uh, so that's, yeah. And it's not like the, the, the me or I know the guy you're talking to, I mean, it's not like we don't like uh, talking to our users and getting feedback. It's just that there's so much when you're like a, you know, one or a three person shop to do, it's like, no, oh, right. I gotta give somewhere. Something's gotta give. And you know, social media, especially if you've got a decent amount of, conversation feedback coming through like twitter and such um you know that if you're spending all day just managing that responding to it and making sure um you're not ne neglecting it that means you're not developing so so people aren't going to get the features they want so. twitter alex pretty soon people are going to be doing customer support in pokemon go yes yeah. <laughs> it seems like it's past the, the active daily users that uh, twitter has yeah <laughs> Which is, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, for people who don't know, and surprisingly ran into people today who 
hadn't heard about it yet. <laughs> but yeah, Pokemon Go's Nintendo's first iOS app. It's kind of a a weird it's their second one. Is it the second one? They had some sort yeah, of geocaching one that they discontinued. They did a, well, they did this uh, me app where you basically had created a me and you could ask and answer questions, and no one really liked it. But oh yeah, yeah, forgot about that. That one wasn't very well received, but yeah, this Pokemon Go is created by a company that Google spun out. Uh, I think they did most of the the work behind it, and then they like kind of Pokemon themed it. I will say I, I was fairly disappointed in the onboarding process because yeah. you know you start off by being asked your birthday and then you get the option to create an account or sign in think, with google yeah i think that's due to copper laws though yeah but it seems like there would be a friendlier way i mean that theoretically the game's targeting a younger audience though yeah you know i'm seeing plenty of adults very active uh on pokemon go so well, the thing is, if they said, are you an adult? Everyone would just, all the kids would just say, yes, I'm an adult, rather than, <laughs> yeah. what's your birthday? Yeah. Because uh, if you if you are under 13, it basically says, okay, you can only create this using the Nintendo account, which I think is, has been down the entire time it's been out in the U.S. So oh, wow. it may be up, it may have come up sporadically, but. I think it was up. I think, uh, I think my kids were able to. Okay. Account. Um, and somebody pointed out uh, if you sign in with Google the way they've got it set up right now you're giving them kind of all access to your Google account yeah, so nice. it's, yeah, it's, not, it's not restricted <laughs> at all normally you get a confirmation of this is what you're granting access to but according to somebody's blog post um, it's not terribly secure and you're giving them access to your email contacts, everything. <laughs> so hopefully that gets uh, improved a bit. It's interesting yeah. that they chose Google of all the options out there for authentication, but. Well, I think it, it comes back to the roots of the, the company that created the app. They were spun off from Google. Uh, you guys remember the name of the, the app that was on, it was just on Android. It was a geocaching app. Like a game type thing. What was that? Oh, called? I know what you're talking about. They only ever put it out on Android, and you could go around a different landmark. Ingress. It was called Ingress. Okay. And Neantic Labs. I guess that's how you say it. But uh, they were like a, I think a Google subsidiary. And then when Google did the Alphabet reorganization, they were they got spun off, and worked with the Pokemon company to create this Pokemon Go app. Which I guess Nintendo. It's like owns the like a first party developer. I'm not quite sure about that relationship, but yeah, well, Capcom in the past has been the game developer for Pokemon games. Yeah, I think they've had a couple people do some Pokemon games, but yeah, it's it's confusing who does all of the all the games. But it seems like it's you know it's taken off like a like crazy. See people wandering around everywhere you go, like trying to catch Pokemon. Yeah, looking into their phones, not yeah. really paying attention to what they're swerving finding. on the road and stuff. Yeah, I saw this Facebook post earlier today where uh, this is kind of bad, but um, this this I guess like an adult posted. Okay, I had two kids come up to my uh, doorway, and uh, 
They said, sir, do you mind if we go in your backyard? There's a Pikachu that we want to catch in Pokemon Go. <laughs> so he slams the door shut and posts a screenshot of his app with a Pikachu. He's like, guess who has a Pikachu now? <laughs> <laughs> Poor kids, but <laughs> taking the world by storm. Yeah, people do go crazy for that thing. Yeah. yeah Pokemon, I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys were big in the Pokemon. No. I wasn't. I, it was just past me. Oh, it still seems to be fairly popular. It like comes and goes. Yeah, my kid, my kids like it. Yeah. And Sam and I are are definitely too old for that. I came later. Yeah. But yeah, it seems to to uh, quickly uh, dominated. We'll see how long it lasts, though. It seems like it's a pretty simple game. Yeah. Hopefully they'll have lots of more content and updates forthcoming to keep people interested or it could be like one of those like a uh, one one hit wonder apps like that are going strong for a couple weeks and then they're just not existent. Yeah, you know, it's, it could be a floppy bird or it could be could be a supercell app, who knows. Yeah. I mean, it's it's got some clever things in terms of like content of recognizing where you are and and having Pokemon relevant to your location. Yeah, somebody yeah. At, somebody at work today was talking about going downtown because she had heard that there were more Pokemon <laughs> hanging around down there. Oh, yeah, there's a grocery store near us, Jungle Gyms, if you're from Cincinnati, and they posted a map of all the Pokemon in their store, apparently. <laughs> the zoo's a happening happen spot, too, apparently. Oh. Yeah. yeah, well, I think it'll stay popular as long as... The weather is good. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. Not going to be a lot of people trudging around the snow for a Pokemon. One of my teammates said there's a Pokemon stop near a stop sign by his house, so he doesn't have to get out of the car. He can just drive up. <laughs> nice. If, if kids are getting outside and walking around, and though even if their faces are still buried in their phones, at least they're outside. Getting some fresh air, exercise. Mm -hmm. All yeah, right, definitely a good thing. We want to talk about the uh, the new MacBooks. I mean the the new MacBooks <laughs> that aren't here. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there was a a post in on Mac Rumors earlier today talking about uh, Apple falling in the ranking in terms of uh, computer sales um, as people are waiting for new hardware. They want and those skylakes. Yeah, what are you supposed to do if you need a computer now, though? Yeah, I mean, that's the position I'm in. I, My personal computer died. I took it to the Apple store to see if I could get it repaired. And they don't carry the parts anymore. Oh, so, is it obsoleted? Yeah, so I could could have taken it to a third party, but I probably would have paid six to eight hundred dollars after labor, just to get it repaired long enough to to get a new computer. Which you can build a decent computer for that price. Yeah, exactly. You guys both said I was crazy, like a year ago, six months ago. We talked about it again when I was like, "Oh yeah, Hackintosh is the way to go." Yeah, I, I've, I've definitely been seeing a lot more people on Twitter talking about their Hackintosh. 
Well, I'm still saying you're crazy, but so, <laughs> Alex, there's lots of other people crazy now. <laughs> yeah. Alex, for people who don't know what a Hackintosh is, you do you want to explain it? Uh, yeah, three? so <laughs> yeah, it, that sounds about right. But just to recap, you know, you basically find a bunch of uh, components that are pretty close to what's in a legitimate Mac, and you uh, build yourself your own computer, and then you can essentially run uh, Mac OS. I guess now what it's called on it. Um, and normally it turns out a lot cheaper and you can probably get some, some more performance in certain areas, especially like GPUs compared to what you can buy anywhere um, with the Apple hardware. I've been building Hackintosh and use it as my main machine probably for like five or six years at this point uh, with little spurts where I got a new laptop. So I use that for a while, but I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty seamless thing once you get it set up. And let me tell you, it's a pain in the butt to kind of figure out how things work and get started. But once it's running, it's pretty safe to to run updates. You maybe want to just wait a couple days after a new you know point release comes out for for the OS. But yeah. So the original ones, you needed to use like a hacked bootloader or something. Is that still the case? Um, no. So, uh, at this point, you, you do need your own bootloader, bootloader. I can't talk. You, you do need your own bootloader. Um, but it, it basically, uh, it emulates, uh, Mac bootloader pretty well. It's just kind of like a EFI, custom EFI bootloader, and you can put some special drivers in there if you need it for like your power management and stuff like that. That's kind of that annoying setup process. Um, but okay, I think the main thing is to find a guide that lists parts that people have already yep. kind of made sure they can get working. And you know, if you do that, then it's not not nearly as difficult. You can't just go out and buy any old parts or. Um, you can't even really buy a computer off the shelf because a lot of times the, you know, like a Dell or HP or Lenovo, they, they've got a custom motherboard that, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get everything working. Uh, so if you find one of the guides and follow that pretty closely, there's a higher probability of it, it working without too much work. Uh, but, yeah, the De biggest definitely seeing people say they've spent a good sixty plus hours just kind of tweaking and getting everything operational. And if you need any help, Alex, uh, I'll I'll help you out, and it'll take you a lot less than that. But uh, the biggest pain points are are basically like uh, sound. Um, sometimes you have to do special things to get sound working. Uh, GPUs, uh, getting drivers for those, um, and then things related to uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Apple is really picky about that. Uh, so, like your AirDrop and your continuity and um, handoff. Continuity. Yeah, that stuff. You really, if you want that to work, you need to buy a very specific uh, PCI Express uh, Bluetooth Wi Fi combo chip to put in your in your machine. And then iMessage is like the holy grail of, uh, of a Hackintosh. That's kind of the hardest thing to get working. But if, if you're going to use it as your main computer, you probably want to get iMessage working. I imagine I, that's I, similar for answering phone calls too. I don't know if that's a feature you use, but it barely worked on uh, on 
on a standard Mac, I, I imagine yeah, that's, it's a that's... little difficult on a Hackintosh. Well, that's actually just grouped in with the same like handoff continuity stuff. If you've got the right the right card in there, that that stuff all works fine. I would take calls on my Hackintosh all the time. <laughs> the thing that kind of bothers me, and this isn't necessarily specific to Hackintosh, but you know, if you've got a Apple discontinued the Thunderbolt display, but really any Thunderbolt devices, Thunderbolt one and two. Uh, there really isn't any adapters. So even if you get a, a new MacBook, it's USB-C, and there's no USB-C to Thunderbolt mini DisplayPort. I mean, there's like one or two on that you can find on Amazon, but they don't do data. They just do audio and video. Yeah, I was going to say, normally you'll have like a, a big old DisplayPort, and you can get a DisplayPort to mini DisplayPort cable if you want to get the video stuff working but yeah you're kind of sol on the on the data point unless you want a really expensive card we were looking at them before the, the we started recording and it was like if you can find one it's like over 150 dollars yeah a lot of them have much... been, yeah a lot of them have been discontinued and yeah. i don't know if that's because it's an old spec and only apple really supported it or uh if it's uh if there's other reasons why it's not supported anymore. USB-C is clearly going to be the, the more standard connection for now. But, you know, if you've got a Thunderbolt display or a, an external hard drive that uses Thunderbolt, you're, you're going to be out of luck. Okay, so, so what was... Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. So we finally got an Alex to build his Hackintosh. What is it going to take, Sam, for you to build a Hackintosh? Are you pretty happy with your current computer? Are you waiting for the Skylake MacBooks, MacBook Pros to come out? Or Oh, I'm definitely waiting for those Skylake MacBooks, MacBook Pros. But for me, it's more about I get more I get my value out of a, a laptop because I can take it places and I have it at my desk and I'm using it all the time. If I were to buy a desktop as well, as a laptop, I wouldn't feel I was getting my money out of the laptop because I would just be on the desktop all the time. And then everything on the laptop would be out of date and just out of sync. So for the amount that I use my personal laptop, it doesn't make sense for me to have two machines, really. Unless you're talking about one being a server or something like that. Yeah. You can build yeah, I a Hackintosh for... You know, around twelve hundred dollars. Well, you can get a or less. a cheap one for for less. But if you want like good performance, you're doing development and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a lot cheaper than a MacBook Pro for sure. And if you want to yeah. be able to dual boot it and do games or VR, um, you can do that too. That might be a little bit more of a, a draw, but I tend to not have time to do games anyway. I got a right. few games sitting on my PlayStation, really yeah. most for the most part untouched. I think, like, just because Apple hasn't been updating the hardware, like, if you spec out a high-end iMac or a Mac Pro, you're going to be spending $4,000, and it's still not going to be comparable to what you can build for $1,500. Oh, yeah, totally agree. And and you add in that Apple also blocks you from being able to upgrade the hardware later, so, um, you yeah. know, 
So Alex can probably extend the life of his uh, his Hackintosh by by several years because he can upgrade the internals without too much effort. Yeah. yeah, the biggest thing that pushed me towards it was the GPU, and I've already upgraded my GPU once in there. Um, swap out the card and you're good to go. Deal with the drivers or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I used but... to build my own machines and run Linux distributions and <laughs> things like that. Dual boot Windows and Linux all the time. I wish, should point out Alex is big into VR, so that yeah, that also helps. Um, I need the justifies power. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you need need a high end graphics card. Yeah, you know, with hopefully Apple will will include a high end graphics card in their uh, their Pro line. But yeah, we'll I see. imagine once once the new Skylake stuff comes out, uh, we'll probably be at least somewhat comparable to what you can build yourself in terms of what power you can do. Maybe we'll get a new Mac Pro that's as good, but there's the one thing that people don't really do with, with Hackintoshes, or I haven't really seen people try much, is to use server class processors um, that are in the, the Mac Pros. So if that's something you need, or like ECC RAM, then um, do they still, still Do they still make Xeon processors? or? I mean, yeah, I mean, I that's guess what the do. Mac Pro uses, yeah. Yeah, but the Mac Pro is like three years old, almost three years old now. Oh yeah, I would never recommend anyone buy a Mac Pro right now, but yeah. I mean, you don't hear too much about the server class processors from Intel. It's usually focused yeah. on the mobile and desktop class. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the realm we play in mostly. And really, the server class processors are more of a, a business thing anyway. Yeah. Well, and. A big part of the motivation, especially if you're looking at something portable, like a MacBook Pro, you're as concerned, if not more so, with battery life. So you go for these lower-end processors so you can extend that battery life. So who knows? You know, with any luck, Apple will introduce new hardware before September. But uh, you know, I, I'm personally getting to the point that I'm I'm down a machine and. I might experiment with building my own. If nothing else, you can run Linux on it later. Yep. Yeah, I'll definitely yeah. find a use for it. And it's Get not... your server-side Swift going. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll turn it into a NAS or a media server. Who knows? Yeah. Make use of it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Should oh. we wrap it up? Yeah. All right. Before. Well, that's that's about all the time we have left, so... Uh, why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on Twitter? You can find me at AJ Robinson. And I am at Sam Corder. I'm at Alex Argo. Uh, the podcast is at Shared Inst. Uh, keep the feedback coming and join us in our Slack uh, chat by going to chat.sharedinstance.com. Uh, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Cool. See you. Later.